Good morning and welcome back. I'm Rick Brown. Thank you for joining us on today's Seek First podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Take a minute to subscribe to the Seek First podcast. Thanks, everybody. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready. Grab your Bible. Prepare your heart and mind. Let's go. What makes us so fearless, you guys, is our relationship with Jesus. Because he's removed the fear, the fear of death, which, according to Hebrews chapter 2, keeps people in the bondage of the fear of death their entire life. You're terrified of death if you don't know where you're going, right? And, and so because we know where we're going, this incredible promise that is so life-changing, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, the day that I breathe my last, I'm going to wake up in the arms of Jesus. And so if Omicron or Deltacron or Fluorona gets me, I'm like, hallelujah, praise God, I'm going to heaven. We want to look at uh, Matthew chapter 3. If you haven't joined us, you're new to our fellowship. If you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 3. But we're reading through in our Anchored in the Word, which we go through the Bible in two years. And, and many Christians have never read through the Bible, so we're going through a pace. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, just raise your hand. The service team will get you one. And if you, if you don't have a Bible at home, then take that home, and that's a gift to you from the church. We've had people over the last few months take the gift Bible home, start reading it, and give their life to Christ because God's Word does not return void. The passage in Matthew chapter 3 is ideal because it's about the life of a preacher. The preacher's name is John the Baptist, and we want to briefly just mention seven things that John the Baptist brings that each one of us can implement in our own life when we're thinking about uh, sharing our faith with other people. We're going to read this passage to start our time together, and then we're going to spend a little time, and then we're going to give an invitation for those who want to get baptized to follow the Lord in baptism. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was, was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us in our lost condition, our broken condition, to bring forgiveness and salvation to our souls. And we're so thankful and we're going to be eternally thankful. We ask now that you'd open our eyes and we'd see wonderful things from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Preachers are an odd lot and get a bum rap sometimes, but every now and then they have an epic moment. It's like the pastor that was known for his integrity in a small community. And there were two thugs, two guys that lived in the, the town that were always in trouble with the law. They were terrifying to the citizens of the community. And through an accident, one of those brothers died. And so the other brother, who was uh, this big bully, came to the preacher and said, Preacher, I'm gonna I want this funeral here at this church, and you're going to tell everybody that my brother was a saint. And the preacher started to push back a little bit, like, hey, you know, I, it's not my, no, he goes, no, if you don't tell everybody my brother's a saint, I'm going to pound you. So the preacher smiled and said, okay. The place was packed, this guy was younger, and he, the preacher said, as he pointed to the casket, he said, now you guys all know this guy was a very, very bad guy. But compared to his brother on the front row, he was a saint. So he is able to stay true to the story and be able to say, compared to his brother, he was a saint. What are the ingredients? What are the things that are important to a preacher? You see, every single Christian in your own sphere of influence, you are that voice. You are that preacher. You are the person that I'm never going to reach, that Rob's never going to reach. They're your neighbor. They're your coworker. They're your family member. And you can't drag them kicking and screaming to church. You are that voice. And these seven thoughts that stand out in this passage are good for us as we think about those who are following the message of coming to Christ and baptism today. The first thought is, is the preacher's message. In verses 1 and 2 it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance and the word sin are two words that are anathema in culture. Right? You don't say repent or don't say this. People are sinful. And yet we know those things are both true. First of all, that man has separated himself from God through sin, but through turning. And that's what repentance means. Sometimes you want to just simply say, turn to God, because that's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. If I'm going this way, away from God's will, away from God's heart, away from God's son, Jesus... And then I think in my mind, hey, I should get right with God. I change my mind first, which changes the course of my life. And now I start walking back towards God, wanting his will, wanting Jesus' love and grace and forgiveness to flow to my life. So the first mass word of the gospel is turn. Turn from the course you're on. The course you're on is, and we, we come into this world with this fallen nature that is at enmity with God and at odds with God and under the wrath of God because we're simply people that want nothing to do with God. Before I came to Christ at the age of 19 and trouble with the law and, you know, all kinds of garbage, if people invited me to church, I hated to be invited to church. Have you ever, and if you're here and somebody invited you and you're just sitting there like, oh, they promised me in and out if I would come, here I am, right? I get it. I was that guy. I did not want to go to church. And uh, yet, I had some grand grandparents that drugged me to church when I was a kid. So I did have a drug problem other than drugs as well, <laughs> because I was drugged to church. 
One Sunday night at our fellowship in Idaho, I was greeting people out on the front sidewalk, and a dad got out, a single father. He had an eight-year-old in tow, and the kid had these cute little cowboy boots. And literally, the kid set his feet and was skiing across the parking lot. And he was going, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to go to church. And he drug him into the building. And then I'm out there afterwards, and he literally had to drag him skiing back to the truck. He's, I don't want to leave church. I think it's awesome. And I was thinking to myself, this little kid's going to have a serious drug problem, right? <laughs> First, you can't drag him into church. Then he doesn't want to be drug away from church. But people are put off by this message that, you know what? You're not okay in your life of sin and selfishness, and you have to turn to God. You have to turn to God because, you see, it's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, there's an invisible kingdom that through faith in Christ you enter into and now God lives inside of me, you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This building is not the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is not the temple of the Holy Spirit till you guys all showed up and you believe in Jesus. And we are individual temples of the Holy Spirit, but we're a corporate temple when we're all together loving God. And this is the message that a preacher comes with, is turn, turn to God and step into this invisible kingdom that is filled with love, joy, and peace. What is everybody looking for? I don't care what they're chasing. Money, sex, drugs, rock and roll. They're all looking for love, joy, and peace. That's what they're looking for, right? And we, we're trying to find it in ways that are broken, ways that are filled with pleasure and sin, but not anything that satisfies. So first of all, the preacher's message is one of turning into this invisible kingdom that has a king on the throne. His name's Jesus. Secondly, the preacher's purpose is to make straight the way of the Lord, as it tells us here in verse 3. And Isaiah's passage is a little bit more explicit about John the Baptist. Can you imagine John the Baptist, 700 years before he showed up on the scene, the Lord prophesied through Isaiah that he was going to show up? That's pretty cool. Like I had this job description like 700 years ago. I'm just stepping into it today so he can preach. But this is what it says in Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. And the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. He uses the message as a herald. He said, you know what? God's desire for John the Baptist, who's going to prepare the way for Jesus, is the picture of a dignitary that's coming from a city to another city, from point A to point B. And that herald is to prepare a way in the desert. And when you hear the message of Jesus' love, it's like an oasis in the middle of the desert. There's a barrenness that life has. I remember... When my daughter, she had got married, she moved out, they were living in Florida, and she called me, and she'd been working at this hospital. It was the first time that she'd been working 40 hours a week consistently in her, you know, adult life. And she called me, and she said, Dad, do you know that people just eat, sleep, get up, and go to work 40 hours a week and get a paycheck, and that's all there is to life? Now, my daughter knew Jesus, knows Jesus, and so she has this relationship with Jesus, but she said, without the Lord, what an empty, like, that's your experience, right? Just eat, sleep, go to work, pay the bills, at the end of life, die, be stuck in a hole. That's inspiring. <laughs> that's exactly what I want to do, right? And the reality is, though, that there's a wilderness, there's a desert of drought in the soul, in the human soul, and he gives four pictures 
that are geographical, if you will, or topographical in, in a roadway that pictures the obstacle in the heart of a person. You see, the goal of the preacher is to build a bridge to hearts that need God, right? And in order to build that bridge, there's a lot of obstacles that you have to get over. And the first one he tells us is every valley shall be exalted. So in a roadway, if there's a big low spot and a king is coming with his, his entourage, they may fill that spot in. So it's, it's, it's paving the road basically for the Lord to come into the human heart. And, and the problem with some here today is the barrier between you and the Lord as you are so low, you are so depressed, you are so discouraged, you see only hopelessness, right? You're absolutely hopeless. And you look around at your life and you're just at the end of it. And how many times over the years I've had this experience where somebody said, I'm going to go to church one more time and then I'm going to go blow my brains out. We've had it a number of times. As a matter of fact, this one guy, in a very dramatic way, he was coming to church, he was an Iraq vet, and he was wearing a trench coat, and he was very troubling. I told our usher team to keep an eye on this guy, because he's really dodgy. If anybody's going to come in here and shoot us all up, it's him. And one day he came in, and he was totally radiant. He was a different guy, and he marched right up to me and said, Pastor, I have to tell you about the last seven weeks. He said, ever since I got back from Iraq, I've been so depressed, I've been so down, I've been so hopeless. He said, every Sunday morning for the last seven Sunday mornings, I put a round in my revolver and I spin it and I pray. And I say, Lord, if you don't want me to go to Water Springs Church today, then take my life. And he had put it in his mouth and pulled the trigger. He did it seven Sundays in a row. Now, you don't have to be a brilliant mathematician to see that's amazing odds. Right, that he survived seven. And on that eighth one, he got saved and gave his life to Christ. And then on the following, on the following Sunday, he came with a big smile. He goes, Pastor, after a week of knowing Jesus, I thought it's probably not a healthy thing for me to have a gun in the house, so I've given it away. <laughs> right? It, it's, like a, it's like an alcoholic pouring out all the booze, <laughs> flushing the drugs down the toilet. But the, real, the reality is he was so low and so depressed, the only way out isn't it something, and, and anybody, in, most people in this room have been affected by suicide somehow. And suicide is that deep emotional pain that you want to kill that pain. And the only way you think to kill that pain is to kill your body. But your body is, your heart's beating, your lungs are breathing. There's nothing wrong with the physical body. It's the soul, right? There's something that has to die in the soul that the sin that's dominating your life that's what's destroying you. So the Lord wants to build a bridge to your heart of depression, to your heart of discouragement. He sees you. As a matter of fact, the psalmist said, he put your tears in a bottle. He sees your tears when nobody else sees it. The second picture that he gives us here is every mountain and hill will be brought low. So for some, there's an obstacle of their own self-importance that's between them and the Lord coming into their life. It's the opposite of the discouraged person, right? It's the person that's like, I'm here now. Let's talk about me for a while. <laughs> right? They're so filled with themselves. They're so arrogant. They're like, I don't need God. I'm a self-made man. And they have this persona. But the reality is, is their heart and their pride is a barrier from Jesus coming in because Humility is the gateway to coming to the Lord, right? I have to realize I am a fallen, broken sinner, and I need him and my pride. The Bible says God opposes the proud as if you need more problems in your life, right? 
God's in opposition to your pride. But he says, but I give grace to the humble. So in order to get the grace, you got to humble yourself. You want to stay proud? He's going to resist you and fight you. i got enough problems without the God of the universe fighting my life. So I'm going to go the route that gets some grace through humility. Thirdly, he gives this picture of the crooked places shall be made straight. This is a topographical illustration of a person's heart and life that is so entangled and entwisted in sin that they think there's no way out. Not God... Even God couldn't straighten out my mess. Do you got one of those messes? Right before I came into this service, I got a text from a friend. And I got a text a couple of days ago. I, I've been busy. I didn't get back to him. And, and, and it's been a struggle for him. He's just went from one thing and, and one DUI to jail time to, you know, just back and forth and off and on. And I went to school with him and I graduated and I love this guy. I really do. But right now he's in this pickle. He's in this tangled and without some rescue or grace or mercy, he's going back to the pen. And sometimes we think that the crookedness of your life, the twistedness of what you've gotten yourself into, the lie that you said, lie upon lie upon lie upon lie. And isn't the pitch, have you ever been in a cycle where you're lying to everybody? A person that lies has to have a really good memory because you have to remember what you told everybody. That's That's what Abraham Lincoln said. The person that's a liar has to have a really good memory. Because I can't remember who I told what. But God can untangle all of that and make that straight. Maybe you've made a mess. Right now, your life is one big tangled web that is about ready to just go poof and blow up. Well, there's no time like now to ask Jesus to make that straight, to straighten it out. And lastly, the rough places, smooth. So filling in those potholes. This is a person that's life has just been devastated with blow after blow after blow. Right? Doesn't, you just feel like you've, you've been so broken, so devastated, that there's no resources within you to go further. And yet the Lord tells us specifically, I am near to the brokenhearted. Do you know the person that Jesus is the closest to in this room right now at this moment is the broken heart? Because the greater your need, the closer in proximity the Lord Jesus draws to you. Because in pride we say we have no need, so it's the greatest distance. But we humble ourselves, and now all of a sudden, he's the closest. You see, the preacher comes with a message that I have to turn to God and this invisible kingdom, but I also have to build a bridge to people's prideful hearts, depressed hearts, twisted hearts. All of these things are things that people are reluctant to talk about openly. Somebody asks you, you could be in the worst place in your entire life, and somebody asks, how you doing? Fine. Right? Now, you have to be careful because most of us do that as a greeting, but we don't really mean it. If you say, how you doing, and the person goes, you know, well, I'm glad you ask. And they begin to dump out, you're like, wait, wait, I got things to do. Don't be telling me all that garbage. Right? I want to move on. I, well, then I think to myself, well, you should have said just hello. <laughs> right, then you get the greeting. Don't say how you're doing. But I want you to know the Lord is speaking to your heart here today saying, how you doing? How you doing? And he has the ears to hear and the heart to receive. Now the mind-blowing thing about this story of this preacher is that uh, he's a very eccentric person. Do you know that God can really use odd people? John the Baptist, it says in verse 4, he's the preacher. We see the preacher's fashion and diet. John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. This guy is not a fashion diva. 
He's got camel hair garment with a big leather belt. He's not really styling. Looks like a hippie, great big beard. And his diet is very granola-ish. He's eating literally grasshoppers with honey. Now, so I guess he's getting a little protein with a little uh, honey drizzled on top. Now, I don't know. Raise your hand if you've ever eaten grasshoppers. Okay, we got some people. Grasshoppers are actually pretty good. I've eaten, you know, when you go to Uganda, they have, they have grasshopper season, and they harvest them, and then they, they're, they're kind enough to pull off the legs, and they fry them in peanut oil. And I joked with my friend, he gave me a bag of these. It's, it's, like, it's like eating sunflower seeds, right? They're very crunchy. <laughs> Got some protein. I said, these things are so good. He said, well, they fry them in peanut oil. I said, well, you could, you could fry my tennis shoe in pe- peanut oil and it tastes this good. But it's a thing there, right? In, in Uganda, it's a, a seasonal thing. It's a little uh, treat that you get. But imagine this. In simplicity, the preacher, it, it's not about his clothes. Is that you? Okay. It, it's not about the preacher's clothes. And this is so important that it, it's not about, you know, their $2,000 suit, about their Rolex, about how hip and cool they are. It's also not about their diet. You guys didn't come here to hear about my vegan slush, whatever the latest thing is, that you can be close to God if you eat like me. (laughs) The Bible says, Paul the Apostle says, food does not commend you to God, meaning that no matter how you eat, that doesn't make you closer to God. Now, I work out, I eat healthy, I take care of myself, but I'm never going to talk to you about working out or how to eat. I'm going to talk to you about the love of Jesus, because that's what's transformative. And I also am not trying to impress with clothing. I have no style, personally. So honestly, people, people don't care about how fancy your clothes are. They don't care about your Rolex. They don't care about your diet. They don't care about, they, they want to hear that there's hope for somebody like them in God's kingdom. They want to know if all the destruction and the bad and the selfish and the the loneliness of their life, they want to know if the God that they've heard so much about is actually able to love them. Because this is the most mind-blowing thing, that God knows every single thing about me. The psalmist says he knows my thoughts afar off. Before I even think the thought, he knows what it is. All my days are already laid out, and God is an eternal God. So my book is already finished. He knows everything about my life. And I want you to know there's no other human being on the planet that knows me and my thoughts. Now, my wife is the closest human being to me and knows most of them. But if she knew all of them, (laughs) I would be seriously in trouble. So don't laugh at me, so would you be in serious trouble. When I heard a a couple of years ago that they've come up with a technology to wire people's brains together to actually know what each other's thinking, I'm like, that is terrifying. Wouldn't you be terrified for people just to live in your head for one day? That's like scary. Sometimes I scare myself in my own head. I'm driving down the road and I have some thought and I'm like, oh, that startled me. I can't believe I thought that. What was it? I'm not telling you. It would startle you too. So if this is is the reality that God knows everything about me, you guys, and he still loves me, 
Why do we hold back from people really knowing us? Because we know. And this is what we do with people. We start opening up, and as soon as they hit the brakes, like, like something startles them, and go, oh, that's the line. Okay, I'm, I'm going to live on this side of the line. I can't, I can't be that open with that person, right? Because if they knew. That's why dating is the phoniest thing on the world, in the planet, right? Because they really don't know. It takes a long time to kind of peel the layers of the onion out and uh, see what takes place. But the sincerity of this message will produce fruit wherever this ministry happens. That's what happens in John's life. The Baptist, the preacher's success in verse 5, then Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan confessing their sins. Why were they impacted by that? Because the message was for hurting broken hearts. And people are looking for that. That's why the plastic version of Christianity is such a joke. Right? We just all got together and put our ties and suits on and we came and we're all good people. And we have good marriages and we have good kids. And we all get together with a bunch of other good people and play the game. And then we go back home like nothing's wrong. And actually... I mean, your life inside of you is a dumpster fire. You're a mess. And others don't even know. They don't even know that you're on the brink of walking out on the family. You're on the brink of plunging into addiction. You're on the brink, or you're coming from that, right? That's why John really has no time for people that are just going to play a religious game. So we see the fifth thought is the, the preacher's warning to the hypocrites that came to the baptism. He calls them out, and he calls them brood of vipers. They came to his baptism. Now, the, most people are coming confessing, they're sincere, but these religious leaders came, and they had it all together. They're all prim and proper, crossing the T's, dotting the I's, acting like they're the holier-than-thou people. And he says, you bunch of snakes. Now, how would you guys respond if you came into church and I'm like, hey, welcome to God speak, you bunch of snakes. Glad you're here, you deceiving religious hypocrites. Wow, what a congregation we have. He rips, he rips off the religious mask. And as he rips off this religious mask, he said, you know what? Unless you bear fruit worthy of repentance, your religion's not going to help you at all. The difference between relation, religion is man's attempt to be approved and accepted by God. A relationship is God reaching into a broken life and rescuing him. So that's a different dynamic of religion and relationship. And John the Baptist is talking about a relationship with a vibrant living God. And he said, and do not think to say to yourselves, we're, we're descendants of Abraham, surely we're saved. This is what happens to all people. If you ever get real with someone and you talk to their... Uh, to their soul about their relationship with God, they'll usually deflect it with some kind of family heritage. Okay, you, you check it out. You share with somebody this week about, hey, you know the Lord, and they're like, oh, you know, my family's Baptist, or my family's Pentecostals, or my family's Mormons, or my family's Catholics, or my family's Jewish, and, and they throw out this thing that is somehow the catch-all that they're good, they're okay. Now, when I was a total heathen dog, because all my family on both sides were Baptists, if you asked me what I was, I'd say, I'm Baptist. I wasn't anything. I was going to hell in a handbasket. I was a mess. So who cares? I threw out that. And, and that's what he's telling them. Do you know that God could raise up descendants from these stones? This is the reality. God has no grandchildren. 
if you're a teenager here and you think you're going to heaven because your mom and dad are right with God, you got another thing coming. If you think that somehow some secondary relationship, that's what you, you're going to get in the door on their coattails, you're mistaken. Because God has no grandchildren. Every generation, every person has their, have their own revival, their own conversion, their own relationship with God. And so if you come in and you're playing this religious game, and maybe here even at this one o'clock service, everybody around you thinks that you're this stand-up religious person, and you know. Your heart is so far from God today, but you're in the building. I know people, they come in and they just sit down and go to sleep, right? But they feel like, oh, I did my thing, right? I went to church. And so they go through the motions, and John, the preacher, is, warns them and is not afraid to call him out because we just saw that he had tremendous success. People are coming from all over to hear this incredible, life-changing message. But with that, hypocrites come along, and they're coming in, and he's saying, hey, don't deceive yourself by seeing the transformation in all of these people's lives unless you personally are being radical, radically transformed because the ultimate goal of the preacher's goal is to introduce people in a personal relationship with Jesus. As it tells us in verse 11, that he is mightier than John, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus will baptize you in the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, to live a life, to have victory over sin and over the power of death. The two things that the cross enables us to do is for the first time in my life, I can be obedient to God, and for the first time in my life, I'm not terrified of eternity. So you got that choice to make in your relationship with God. But how does it all come together? The preacher's focus is about the message of the cross. And it's here presented before Jesus goes to the cross in the radical baptism that Jesus himself, the sinless son of God, gets baptized. Now, he has nothing to be baptized for. He has no sin to turn from. But he does it as an example to us, and he does it as a prophecy of this is what's coming. It says in verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for all for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him, when he had been baptized, Jesus come up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on, upon him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased." John the Baptist is a little bit freaked out. He's a normal guy. He's a, preacher. He's a preacher, but he knows the Savior's coming, and he wants him to baptize him. I think that'd be pretty cool, right? Get baptized by Jesus, the Savior of the world. And Jesus says, no, you're going to baptize me. He's like, say what? That doesn't work. What do you mean? How's that fit prophetically? Well, because there's this incredible handing off of this Old Testament prophet who John the Baptist was the last of into the new covenant in a relationship with Jesus through the message of the cross. And when Jesus goes down into the water, it's a picture of his death. And when he comes up out of the water, it's a picture of his resurrection. Therefore, Romans tells us the same thing in Romans chapter 6. Don't you know as many of us were baptized in Christ Jesus' death, and then we rose in the newness of life. So Jesus was pointing towards the cross through his baptism. He said, this is what I'm going to do for you. 
There's a little conundrum that some Christians have because they have discovered by grace that you are not saved by baptism. We do not believe in regenerational baptism, meaning that baptism is what saves you. Now, if it was, it would be pretty simple because it's not a change of heart. I would just be going to every neighborhood with a big water truck. And I would just be saying, just get wet, right? Just get wet. In Jesus' name, you're good to go. You got a bath, you got wet, it's all good. But Peter tells us it's not the cleansing of the, fl- the, the filth of the flesh, but a pledge of a, a, a good conscience toward God. So it's an inward change. But when I receive Christ and I'm not saved, I am not saved by baptism, but I'm saved by grace, people will say, well, I don't have to be baptized to be saved and go to heaven. I said, you're right, you're correct. But it is obedience to the Lord. He says, repent and be baptized. So publicly, when you get baptized, do you realize this? When you believe in Jesus and you're saved, that's an internal work that no other human can see. When you're baptized, it's a public event that others see that you've identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for 2,000 years, people have been doing altar calls. Now, first of all, I use every form of altar call. Hey, you want to pray the sinner's prayer with me? You want to raise your hand? You want to come forward? But the New Testament model for public confession is get baptized. And that baptism declares you are now a follower of Jesus to other people because they could not see what happened mystically and invisibly in your own soul. You can tell them, but this is a practical way to do that. So as we turn our heart and we, we head towards baptism right now, maybe you're here and, and you've never been baptized, but you love Jesus. Maybe you're here and you want to receive Jesus and follow him in baptism. Maybe you were baptized when you were a baby and your parents said, hey, I I took care of that work. Now, this is the problem with infant baptism is it says repent and be baptized. A a six-month-old does not know how to repent. I mean, they should repent. All they do is mess their diapers. I mean, they got a lot to (laughs) repent for, but they're not cognizant. They're not, you know, aware. And so you need awareness to be able to repent. You need awareness. So baby baptism doesn't do anything for you. Most of those churches that believe in baby baptism then have a confirmation at age 12 or 13 so that they can go through and recognize what they have done. So anybody that believes this, this simple truth, Jesus loves me. He died on the cross for my sins. He took my punishment on him. And then he rose from the dead three days later. And I've received him as my savior. You may be baptized. You say, wait a second, I've had people, because we'll have a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old little kid come. Do you know their childlike faith? They know Jesus loves me, died on the cross for me, rose from the dead. And people say, you know, should you baptize young kids that haven't really delved into the theological ramifications of the depth of baptism? And I'm like, have you? (laughs) Like, you're 50 and you barely get it. I mean, you're hesitating. (laughs) I think I'd rather baptize 100 kids than one hard-hearted person like you that doesn't even want to follow what the Lord says. You see, the reality is, it's an act of faith. And maybe you came today, and I don't even know, every service, we never do sign-ups, so I, I'm waiting for the time we get stiffed in a service, right? We, we call for, hey, we got everybody wet, praise God, that's awesome, everybody loves Jesus, they followed the Lord in baptism, but I've yet to be surprised that that's the case. Because you know, there are some here today, today's the day. You didn't even know. You just showed up at church. You go, oh, I don't know if I should get baptized in these clothes. I, you know, my hair and everything. I'll have ladies ask for a private baptism because they don't want anybody to see them look like a drowned rat. And I'll say, the whole, the whole point is public baptism. 
It's like people don't get it, right? It's, can I have a private baptism so nobody knows? <laughs> so we want to invite, uh, it's a beautiful day in Southern California. You guys don't have a thing called cold days in California. I'm from Idaho. And, and maybe here today, you, you just have your church clothes on, you didn't know, but today's the day that you're going to follow Jesus and you want to get baptized. And you might hold back because you came with someone else and you're thinking, well, what are they going to think? Hey, just lean over and whisper, hey, you want to get baptized today? They probably want to get baptized too. You and I are so affected by so many people about our decisions, but I promise you this, one day you will stand before God alone. So you must decide to stand with Jesus alone. And if somebody comes along, then praise God. Praise the Lord. That's a beautiful thing. Now, I must warn those who are notorious sinners like myself, we have to hold them down extra long until the bubbles stop and then we'll resuscitate you I'm just teasing we don't do that no, no, we don't do that but the, real, the reality is is that we get, to, we get to follow the Lord and it's a beautiful thing just to walk in obedience to the Lord and those who are going to get baptized today I just encourage you step forward and take the opportunity and you're gonna line up over here. Just come as you are, I don't care who you are. If you've received Jesus and you want to walk with Jesus, then you can follow him today in baptism. See the light in the darkness, I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, 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 and I won't worry about tomorrow or fear in times of trouble. I keep my heart seeking you. Oh, I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, whoa. I will keep my heart seeking.